Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church this morning. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you here. Um, welcome to the online campus and city campus as well. Um, hey, we're on our third and final session on this series on the greatest commandment, where we've been looking through the greatest commandment and really digging in into, to see what that means for us. And what does it mean when Jesus revealed, when he was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment? Jesus replied, the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he wasn't quoting something new. He wasn't making something up. He was quoting from two Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four to five, which we looked at last week. And he quoted the second one from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And when he quoted these passages to his audience, to the hearers, who were Jews, they would have immediately understood the context, they would have immediately understood the gravity of what he was saying, because they would have been so familiar with these books. But for us, oftentimes we are not very familiar with these books. So that's why we're going into and to see, okay, what is the context behind what Jesus was quoting? And so today we're going to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Not many sermons on Leviticus. I know why now. But, but, but we're going to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And in this passage, we actually see a lot of clues on what loving your neighbor as yourself actually looks like. So Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 all the way to 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor. There it is. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let's pray together. <clears throat> o Lord, encourage your church with your word. Lift them up. Build them up, O Lord. For your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is honey on our lips. And so, Lord, I pray, may it be honey on our hearts, O Lord. May it refresh us. And, O oh God, show us you in your word. And, Lord, I pray that you will refresh and breathe new life into our relationships, into our communities, and into our lives. We lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a whole bunch of commands here that seem rather random, but they are all actually painting us a picture of what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. Loving your neighbor as yourself comes at the very end 
of this long list of commands, and it almost functions as like a summary statement. A summary statement. This is, this is what this is all about. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what this, all these commands are really uh, about. And they're not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive list that covers all scenarios, all possible situations. It's guidelines. It's the purpose of these commands is to paint you a picture so that you catch the heart of God. Right? So you ca- not that you know exactly what to do, but you know who God is and how to live in light of that truth. And that's why the refrain that constantly pops up throughout the passage, you'll notice there's a, there's a, there's a, a phrase that's constantly repeated, right, throughout the passage. It is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Now, that is not a revelation of the divine name. You know, in, in Moses, when he came to Moses in the, divine, in, in the burning bush, he revealed his divine name as I am who I am. Now, this is not the revelation of the divine name. Literally in Hebrew, it reads Ani Yahweh, which literally translates to I Yahweh or I Lord. Okay? That's literally what it's saying here. But it's so significant. This, as Pastor Benny would put it, this is the theological anchor of the entire passage. Because we've got to understand that the reason why we're doing all these things, the reason why we've got to pay attention to all these commands is because He is the Lord. Because God is Lord over this people. These commands are not only a reflection of his character, they don't just reveal who he is to us, but obedience to them is an act of worship to him. It is displaying by your actions and how you live and how you interact with one another that who is God to you? And so the reason why we need to pay attention to these commands and what they reveal to us about how we relate to one another is because God is sitting on his throne and he is Lord over us. If you are a Christian, if you profess to follow Jesus Christ, then Jesus is Lord. Amen? Is that true? Amen? And if Jesus is Lord, then how we live is both a reflection of who he is and an act of worship to glorify him. And that's why every single one of these commands is important for us to, to, to grasp and to pay attention to. And as we go through them, right, some of them will grab you, some of them will seem more relatable, some of, some of them will seem more relevant, but they're all important for us to pay attention to. Okay, no matter how you're wired, no matter what your passions in life are. So, I've broken them up into groups, into categories, okay, because it's kind of broken up into categories in the passage, actually. Okay, the first thing that loving your neighbor look, uh, as yourself looks like, the first way it looks like is generosity. Generosity. Generosity says, I have enough. I have enough. Verse 9 to 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So consider this just for a moment. Sometimes when we read passages like this, we can just gloss over it. But consider how counterintuitive this really is. So you have planted a field. You've grown all these beautiful fruits and vegetables. And God is telling you, okay, 
Don't harvest all of them, right? Leave a portion, leave a corner of your field untouched, unharvested. Oh, it belongs to you. Oh, it's still yours, yes. It belongs to you, you planted it, it's in your field, actually belongs to you. But I want you to deliberately and intentionally leave that part for someone else. Get how counterintuitive that is. I don't, because it can feel wasteful, can't it? Like, that's just, that, that part of the field is just there and you cannot touch it. Like, it's like, what a waste, right? And I don't know how you were brought up, how I was brought up is you cannot waste anything, especially food, right? I was brought up, everything on your plate must be finished because my parents work hard to put the food on the table. And some parents tell, say, you know, you know, and my parents never did this, right? But, you know, there's children in Africa who would, who are starving, who would love that food, and then they try to guilt trip you. My parents didn't, never did that. But, you know, there's all these things done that I was brought up, you know, this belief, you cannot waste anything, anything that belongs to you, anything that is yours, use it or save it for yourself. But what God is telling the Israelites here is, no, no, no. This is the kind of people I want you to be. I want you to keep a part of it for someone else. And what that is actually, what he's actually trying to get them to see is that I, God, has, have given you more than enough. I have given you more than enough. And so I want to tr- you to train yourself to say, I have enough here. This is enough. I don't need everything. This is enough. So what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us? It can look like many ways. And by the way, this is not prescribed. Nothing is legalized. Nothing is specified. Do you realize that? He doesn't say how much of the field you need to leave behind. No, he doesn't say that. But we kind of want that, don't we? Part of us wants that. Uh, tell me how much I need to set aside. I already, you already told me I need to set aside 10%. So how much more on top of that? No, no, no. It's not specified here. Because generosity, once I start specifying it to you, once I start legalizing it to you, right? It, you miss it. We miss the heart behind generosity when I start telling you how much you need to be generous with. God is trying to impress upon them his heart of generosity, that he has given us enough. Therefore, do you trust him that he will continue to give you enough? And so what it looks like for us is to deliberately set aside a portion of what we have to not use for yourself, but for others. Can you say, in trust to God, that I have enough? Because the opposite of that, if the mantra of generosity is I have enough, the mantra of greed, which is the opposite of generosity, is what? I don't have enough. I need a bit more. I need more. I need more. The famous quote by John D. Rockefeller, I don't know if this is true or not, but famously he was quoted as saying when he was asked by a reporter, uh, and John D. Rockefeller was at one point the richest man in the entire world. Uh, He was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he replied calmly, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That is the heart of greed. But the heart of generosity is the complete opposite. It's saying, now I have enough. And what, and it can feel as though, right, and some of you are thinking already, but I barely have enough. 
I, I don't have enough. I need every single thing that God has given me for myself because he has just given me just enough. What may be needed, and this is, I'm going to just humbly set before you for your consideration, is if we're going to take what God has said to the Israelites seriously and apply it to ourselves, it would be, okay, maybe our standard of enough needs to drop a bit. Maybe our stand, our level of what we consider enough needs to adjust. Like for, maybe for example, for you, um, enough is a new phone every year. Right? Every time a new phone comes out, you're getting it. New iPhone, that's yours. Right? Now, of course, you, you sell your other phone, you, know, you stock up your phones, but you, you get a new phone every year. You get a new car every five years. Right? You, you, you go on holidays every year. Now, I'm not saying any of that to guilt trip you. I'm not saying don't do any of that. Now, if you get a new phone every year and you think I'm condemning you, I am not. I am not. Again, nothing is specified here. Generosity is not specified. Some of you, you have a standard of, you know, you get a new car every five years, that's how you're brought up, that's how it's like in other countries and whatnot. I'm not passing value judgment upon you, but what I'm just saying is, maybe our standard, our level of what we consider is enough needs to drop or needs to adjust because what God has given you is more than enough. And when you start living a way where you go, I have more than enough, and you start dropping your standard of enough to use that remaining amount to bless those who have less, who need it, then don't you think that God, if you can trust you with this, will He not trust you with more? Will He not trust you if you believe in your actions and how you live and how you use your finances that I have more than enough? Wouldn't God more so prove to you that He is the God of more than enough? He is the God of more than enough. And this doesn't just apply to our finances and our material wealth. As I was reflecting upon this throughout the week, I realized that this also applies, at least for me, and I don't know if you relate, to my time. My time. My time, my most precious resource. Do I believe that I have more than enough time for myself? And God was challenging me this week to, hey, maybe you need to consider how much time for yourself is enough. And so it can apply to anything that God has given you. But the heart behind it is Generosity, And this is exemplified in the Macedonian churches who were poor. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. It says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. The overflowing joy and the extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So what you got here is extreme generosity. They're not just giving of their excess. So they, they're not just giving of what they, 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 they need this amount. They're not just giving on what they is remaining. No, they're dipping into what they actually need. So they're willingly going, I'm going to fast from what I need so that other people can have something. That they 
have caught the heart of generosity. This is love in action. This is loving your neighbour as yourself. In rich generosity. Generosity. Okay. That's number one. Number two. The second way that is described here of how we can love your neighbour as yourself is in honesty, integrity. Honesty and integrity says, you can trust what I say. You can trust what I say. In verse 11 to 12, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, I'm going to go on a limb here and assume that we all kind of agree with this. Right? Even if you are not a Christian and you are here and you're listening, right, you would agree that honesty is the best policy. Right? Uh, and if you're a Christian, you would know that, right, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Mean, say what you mean and mean what you say. Right? You've, if you've been in FCC for enough time, you've heard Pastor Benny say that line multiple times. Right? And so we know this, we agree with this. Right? We know that this is a good principle. Now, what this actually means for us, though, practically, is that what we, how we live and what we say need to match. And so this applies to, especially with work, say you are a tradesperson, do you give people what you say you will give them? Or do you cut corners? When, we, when we're business people, do we give people quality products that actually do what we sell them that they will do? As an employee, do we work diligently? I mean, especially in this environment where we can work from home now, right? When you're at home, working from home, are you working? Are you actually working from home? And, and here's why this is so important. Here's why it's so important. There's a word here that's used that we need to pay attention to. In verse 12, it says, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. So what was happening in that cultural time is if you were to um, like, try to convince someone that you are telling the truth, you would swear on heaven, or you'd swear on God's name, right, to prove that you were telling the truth. But to swear falsely by God's name is to lie, right? And when you lie, you profane the name of your God. That word profane is, the, it is from the root Hebrew word kalal. Kalal. Which means, can mean, among other things, can mean to wound or to pierce. To wound or to pierce. Okay. So when we act dishonestly, when what we say and how we live don't match up, we don't just hurt people, we hurt God. It doesn't just affect our reputation, it affects God's reputation. We are cutting His name up whenever we act dishonestly. For example, for example, say you're an electrician, right, and you came to my house, and throughout the entire time you were working on my house, you were talking about how you go to this main, amazing church, faith community church, you go to the amazing connect group, you got amazing leaders, you got amazing community, you know, and, and, and you love God, you love Jesus, and you're talking about that, and you leave, and after you leave, I see that there's, lights don't work, stuff starts tripping up in my house, I told you that I wanted a socket here, the socket's over there, right? You've done a, a horrible job on my house. How'd that make me feel about you? Not very good, right? You're never gonna go back, 
and not getting a good review on Google. But more than that, how's it gonna make me feel about your God? Or I'm gonna at least, at least think, that church FCC, oh, I don't know what kind of place that is, but I don't wanna go there. But more than that, I'm probably gonna think, that God that they serve, that he just kept talking about, I don't think I want anything to do with that. And I remember talking to someone in the break one, one Sunday and they were sharing with me how they were witnessing to a friend who was not a Christian. And when it came to the topic of Christianity, the friend immediately went, I believe in Jesus, but I, I, don't, I, don't, like, I don't like Christians. And I know you've heard that before, but that's the first time I've heard it from someone, right? I don't, I don't want anything to do with Christians because he was saying, he was sharing with that friend that back home where he was from, the Christian businessmen are dodgy ass. They're even worse than the non-Christians, than the Buddhists, than the Taoists. They're worse, they're the worst of the worst. How we act, when we, how we live, how we work, our honesty and our integrity is not just about your reputation, it's about his. And that's why honesty is not just the best policy, it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship to our God. Honesty. The third one is fairness and compassion. Loving your neighbor as yourself is about fairness and compassion. It's power for the powerless. Power for the powerless, verse 13 to 14. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, if we were to go into this, there's actually quite, uh, as I go through this passage, there's so much actually here, but I had to go over, um, I had to just in broad strokes paint you a picture and unpack it. But in broad strokes, the commands here address the power imbalance that can occur in society. And this is not a bad thing, it's just, it's just what happens. For example, if you lend something to someone, you are in a position of power. Now, when I say power, don't think of, you know, Marvel character power. I'm just talking about, you know, that now you, they owe you something. They owe you something and that you're in a position of power. If you are a business owner, if you are a manager, if you are a leader, if you rent out your property, you are in a position of power, okay? And so the, these commands are actually addressing the heart of what power can do to corrupt our hearts. And it gives an example here of how a, high, a, a, a person can withhold payment from a hired worker. That's an abuse of power. And the reason why they're so significant is because that person may need their, that money to feed their family that night. Because in that culture, you'd get paid every night. You should be at least. And they may need that money that night to feed their family and you withholding them it from them for yourself is affecting them. You're, you're not using your power to lift them up. You're using the, your power to abuse and oppress and push them down. And so what's addressing here is, okay, how are we using the power that we have? Do you use it to lift people up or do you use it to push people down so you can be lifted up. Because how we use our power is a reflection of who God is. If you, are, if you rent out your property and you are a terrible renter, right? You, you don't treat them as people, you, you 
just, just treat them like trash. Your house is a mess. You know, you, things are falling apart. You don't bother fixing them, right? How are you using your power? Is it blessing people or is it hurting them? Is it for your profits only? Because that's what it's getting at. That's what it's, it's talking about because God, he had Jesus, he had all power. But what does the scripture say about Jesus? He did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but instead emptied himself. He cast it all aside and came down. He came down. What did Jesus do with his power? He set it aside and used it. He came down and he lifted us up. That's what God does. He doesn't use his power for himself. He uses his power for us to lift those who have nothing, who are powerless, who have no voice. They use it to lift people up. And that is what God's people should be. If you find yourselves in positions of power, and I know many of you, you are in positions of power. You are leaders, you are managers, you are business owners. Consider, what is your power used for? And is it used to bless people? Fourthly is justice. Justice. Justice is essentially leveling the playing field. Leveling the playing field. In verse 15 to 16, it says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do you realize this? It's not about treating the poor very favorably and the rich poorly or the vice versa. It's about treating everyone equally. Equally. Do not go about spreading slander among your people, meaning false reports, false rumors. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Justice, at the heart of it, justice is about treating one another as fellow people created in the image of God, as common sinners saved by grace. And that is why oftentimes justice is, when we think of justice, is about having, giving a voice to the poor, the homeless, those who are ostracized by society. Why? Because they have already been pushed down. They have already, by society, been treated as lesser than. So justice, generally speaking, is about lifting them up to be seen as equals. And that is why God has harsh things to usually to say about the rich and the powerful. Why? Because they've already been elevated by society as more than. And that's why the justice is about bringing them down to be equal than. Now, on ground level, how do we treat one another? Is it affected at all by how we dress, how we talk, what house you live in, what school your kids go to, what car you drive? Does it affect at all how we treat one another? And I'd say for most of us, I'm, I, I would love to say, right, that it doesn't. Because I don't know what car you drive, <laughs> right? And all of us dress pretty simply here, right? right? It's, it's, you don't go, no, not dressing in gold and fine linen and you know, like wearing crowns on your head. No one does that, right? Especially in Australia, right? Um, but, you know, you, so I, I think, by and large, I don't think we would treat one another that way. But I think we must be careful. I think maybe not really here. Maybe it, it does apply here for some people. But in particular, I wonder if this applies for how we treat one another online. Um, because on the online space, it's very easy to stop seeing those people that we interact with as people. 
right? They're very easily dehumanized. We start speaking down upon them, we start speaking at them rather than with them, rather than to them. And the online space, there's a lot of cries for justice. People are trying to, you know, push this and push that, trying to cancel this person for what they did, cancel that person for what they did. But is that really justice? Are we really equalizing the playing field? Are we really elevating, leveling the playing field? Even if you are right in what you post and what you say, is your approach, by your approach and how you talk and how you interact online, are you treating one another as fellow people made in the image of God with the dignity and respect that that person requires and deserves? Justice is not just about, oh, I'm gonna push this agenda. No, no, no. It's about even how you treat one another. Are you treating one another as equals? Equals, and especially here in this community, regardless of how you talk, your background, or where you live, how you dress, we are all sinners saved by grace. We are all image bearers of our Lord, and therefore we all deserve to be treated equally, fairly, in the same way. And that's why in James chapter two, he has a whole, he addresses favoritism in the church, right? And he says this in verse eight, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, where's he quoting that from? Right here in Leviticus, right? You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For certain he had Leviticus 19 in mind, right? And that's, that's, that's what we need to pay attention to, right? Do we show favoritism or are we a voice to balance the scales in our communities and in our societies. The last one is correction and forgiveness. And this is about corporate responsibility, taking responsibility for another's life. Verse 17 to 18, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart, rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so verse seven, this, this entire thing is addressing a situation where someone has sinned against you. Okay, he, they sinned against you. Go and reason with them. The word there is actually to adjudicate or to decide, right? Go there and, and discern among you, right? Sort it out, right? So that, one, you will not share their guilt. Okay, we're gonna look at why that's the case. And 18, verse 18, so that you will not... Um, risk um, seeking revenge against them. Because if you let that, that fester and that bitterness take root, right? Sometimes we can end up bearing a grudge against them and sinning against that person, treating that person poorly and, and badly. Okay, so this is so important to actually understand. One of the key things to understand what is saying here, especially the part where, so you will not share their guilt, because that doesn't make sense to us, right? I mean, why would that person's wrong be now why would I share their guilt? Now, at the root of it is this principle of corporate responsibility. Corporate responsibility. Okay, I want to show you this. Okay, in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse six to nine, it says this, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. 
but I will hold the watchmen accountable for their blood. Do you, do you see that? Do you catch that? Yes? So that person will die because of the sin, but the person who could have said something, they will be held accountable for that person's death. Son of man, talking to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them a warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sins. So they will get the consequence of their sin. But I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin. Though you yourself will be saved. Okay. Underlying this, how God is talking to Ezekiel, is the principle of corporate responsibility. Now, this feels very foreign to us, doesn't it? Very foreign to us. And if we're honest, it can feel a bit unfair. Unfair. Because I didn't sin, that person did sin. Why am I now held responsible for that guy? Okay, there's two reasons for this. There's two reasons for this, and this is, and I think because we live in a very individualistic society where I'm, I live my life, you live your life. Don't talk to me about my life. Don't talk to me about how I live, and I won't talk to you about how you live, okay? That's an individualistic society. This, we need to reconsider whether that's actually biblical. Okay, I'm gonna go through this. Okay, so there's two reasons for why corporate responsibility, how, why, this is why God treats us this way. One reason is because one person's sin can affect the community. One person's sin can affect the community. For example, have you noticed how rare it is to see one person gossiping by themselves? Yeah. Have you ever seen one person just standing in the corner? Hey, did you hear about Mark? Oh, I did that. Did you hear that? Well, you call that? You call that person crazy, but that doesn't happen, right? You know, I'll paint you a, pic, uh, a scenario, right? It might, might start with one friend, though. It might start with one friend that goes, did you hear about Mark? You hear about Mark? And the other friend goes, no, I didn't hear about Mark. Oh, but I heard about jazz. And now, so quickly, so very quickly, one has become two. Then after a while they're talking and a third person comes along and they hear them talking about Mark and jazz and then they saunter over and go, are you talking about Mark and jazz? I heard about Luke. And, and now one has become two, has become three. Now, just a silly hypothetical scenario which can be so true, but the my point is to show you how quickly one person's sin can affect a community. It's so quick, so easy, how one person's sin can affect a community. And that is why unrepentant, ongoing sin, especially those that affect a community, if left unchecked, can sow chaos, conflict, and can even lead other people to fall into sin as well. And that is why we see throughout the Bible, God holds the community accountable for sin. For example, I'll show you with you a very quick biblical example in Joshua chapter seven. Joshua chapter seven is right after the battle of Jericho. You know the battle of Jericho is this amazing W, amazing win for the people of Israel, right? They defeated this amazing city with high walls, impenetrable walls, and it came down, they sacked the city, and it's amazing, right? We did it, how did that happen? By God, you know, and they're, they're celebrating, right? And they come to the next city called Ai, A-I, Ai, right? And, they, and it's a small little city, right, small. And they're going, 
we did Jericho, this is nothing, we're gonna walk in the park. So they go in a tight eye, but instead of winning, they flee. But again, it's a crushing defeat, humiliating defeat. And they're, they're licking their wounds and Joshua's coming for God and goes going, what is going on, God? What is happening? And God, if you read Joshua chapter seven, he literally go, he goes, get up off your face. Why are you crying? Clearly, someone has done something wrong. So go find out who it is. And so through some investigative journalism, right, they find that it's this guy called Akan who took something from Jericho and that was devoted to God because everything was devoted to God and took some of that and hid it under his tent. He was guilty of stealing from the Lord. Stealing from the Lord and hid it under his tent. And when the community find found out, they brought Akan, his possessions, his family before the community and the community uh, judged him. Community took action to remove sin from their community. The community did. Community did. And that is why oftentimes when you see the commands against sin, right, what should the community do? It's not just the leaders, it's not just the judges that execute people, it is the community that comes around and executes that person. Why? And that sounds so foreign to us, I know, I know. But the, the, the underlying heart of it, the root of it, is we are all responsible for one another. We are all responsible for one another. Okay. And so that leads me to my second point on this. The second reason why corporate responsibility is, I think, a biblical thing is because we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. In Genesis chapter four, verse nine, when Cain had murdered his brother Abel, God comes to Cain and asks, where is your brother? And Cain goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, that line alone reveals this the, the, the consequence of sin on our relationships. Because now there is a division, there is a wedge that has been drawn, a separation that has been drawn between me and you. Because now I am not your keeper anymore. There's a separation between us. But I wonder if that was truly God's intended design for our relationships. And so that's why, more so now, in our individualistic societies, where you live your way and I live my way, don't tell me how to live and I won't tell you how to live, right? I wonder if that is a critical departure from biblical relationships. What if God's intent was for always for us to be our brother's keeper? Meaning, what that means is to not just care for one another. Because if I told you to care for one another, you'd be like, easy, done. I can care for that, for one another. No, no, it's more than that. Not just care for one another, but to take personal responsibility for one another. For one another. You get how this is different? It means that how you live affects me. Do you understand, do you see how this truly is a literal outworking of love your neighbor as yourself? <laughs> because you are treating that neighbor, that person, like yourself. You are taking responsibility for that person's life. Meaning, and I'm not saying now that you start whipping out your judgment gun and going, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You did bad, you did bad. I know you sinned in secret, boom. You know, I'm not saying that, right? I'm not saying you're on a confrontational rampage, right? I'm saying, in love, we must take seriously 
how one another live our lives. Therefore, in our communities, in our small groups, and some of you, your small groups are structured in a way where you have mentoring um, weeks, where you gather in smaller groups to do life with one another, to encourage one another, right? We need to take those times seriously. Because that is a moment where you are closely, inter- intimately interacting with someone and you, that's your opportunity to go, okay, how can I support you in your life? If you know they're struggling with something, it's not just go, you're struggling with that thing, deal with it. What if the more loving thing to do is to go, I know you've been struggling with this for a long time. How can I help you in your struggle with this sin or with this weakness or with this issue? How can I step into your life to lift you up? How can I help you bear your burdens? And if you see something that's going on in life, whether good or bad, like a watchman, what if we have a responsibility to say something? to do something, to warn, to confront, to lovingly confront, to address it. Because God doesn't just see us as individuals, He sees us as a church, as His body, as His body. And just like a body will help one another out, we are called to help one another out. And that also means that we, and I know as a society, we are not structured in a way where we can meet one another every single day, right? But we can pray for one another every single day. And I wonder if we need to, at bare minimum, start taking prayers for one another maybe more seriously. Instead of just having it as a tag on after, to end off our night, okay, let's just close in prayer, guys. Um, what if that is the time when we are interceding for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the time. That is the most crucial time of our night. That's the most crucial time of our meetings. That's the most crucial time of our day when we can support our brothers and sisters in their lives. To not just pray for their felt needs and the issues they're going on in life, which is absolutely important, but to pray for the spiritual walk, but to pray for their souls, to pray that they'll continue to um, resist sin, walk in the Spirit, pursue Christ, the obstacles in their lives that they're facing will fade away. They'll have perseverance in the faith. What do we need to take that time seriously to truly stand in the gap and on behalf of our brother and sister to love them as ourselves. As much as you pray for yourself, pray for them. Because that is how we love one another and take one another's life as our personal responsibility. That is loving your neighbour as yourself. So church, as a response, I'm going to ask us to stand. And if you're online or in your city, I'll also ask you to do the same. If you're online, there's something a bit different for you. But what I'm going to get you to do after I pray for us is, and I know this is going to be awkward, right? But I want us to find someone next to you 
and I want you to pray a blessing upon that person. Just pray a blessing of encouragement on that person. It doesn't need to be long, it doesn't need to be an essay, it doesn't need to be a sermon. Just pray a short blessing upon that person. And it doesn't matter if you know them or not, okay? Because this perhaps is just one short, easy way that we can start practicing that this is my neighbour, this is my brother and sister, and I'm going to love on them by praying for them, by interceding for them. And if you send something from the Lord, you can release it to them, you can just pray for them, love on them, okay? And if you're online, what I encourage you to do, if if you're with someone, pray for that person. If not, if you're by yourself, why don't you consider joining one of the Zoom rooms? And there'll be people that you can pray with and you can pray for as well. And that's where the community meets and that's where we actually do life together. So I encourage you to do that as well. So let me pray and then we're gonna do that, okay? Oh Lord, you have placed us in community, in societies, in families, oh Lord. And you have shown us who you are, that you love people. You don't just love us, me, I and myself. No, you love the person next to me. You love the person behind me. You love the person in front of me. And Lord, I pray that we will catch your heart for them. May our heart break for what breaks yours. May our hearts delight in what delights yours. And may our hearts go out with compassion to our brothers and sisters around us especially in our connect groups, especially in our connect groups and our mentoring groups, oh Lord. I am praying, oh God, that true fellowship will be had there. True fellowship. Not just superficial relationships where we just ask, how's your week? How's it going? No, there is actual support. There's actual accountability. There's actual discipleship. Encouraging one another. As Hebrews 10, 24 says, Spur one another onto love and good deeds. May that truly happen. And may it even start right now. May it start right now. So, oh Lord, bless us. Bless us and help us catch your heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.